Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, let's solve some of the issues related to investing in fixed income with Jim Bianco. He is the president and the founder of Bianco Research, and he joins us now. Jim, great to have you with us as always. I wonder if you could just comment on a an interview that uh, Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker just did with uh, Ben Melkman, uh, formerly of Brevin Howard, is speaking about the, the slope of the yield curve and how he sees that that is going to uh, increase uh, he has great co- conviction. Great conviction. I beg your pardon. Great conviction uh, that you're going to see this uh, big uh, slope move higher in the yield curve. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, um, not really. I, I understand why you would think that if you thought that inflation was going to come back and, you'd, and even if the Fed was going to raise rates, the long end of the yield curve would go up a lot faster. But I'm not fully into the inflation camp just yet. I know that that's been the popular idea for a lot of people, that inflation is going to return. And if not, and we see more weakness, you're going to see the long end of the yield curve fall in yields relative to the front end of the yield curve. They're not going to go down on the front end. They might still go up if the Fed raises rates. And you might still see the curve stay where it's at right now, if not flatten a little bit more. But it really comes down to what your view of inflation is. What's your view? That it's it's not here yet. I understand that everybody's looking for it. I get the idea that wages are percolating a little bit, but they have been for about 18 months. Uh, I, I also see the idea that, you know, in the forward measures of inflation, like inflation expectations, are starting to move a little bit higher. But I've seen this movie since 2009 at least four or five other times, and it always seems to peter out because at the end of the day, you still have way too weak a growth, I think, to create the, um, the type of inflation demand pull that I think most people are looking for. And since I don't see that, I don't think we're going to get the inflation that everybody's hoping for. So you had Morgan Stanley coming out uh, earlier today and talking about how he how they expect uh, the 10-year Treasury yield to go to 2% by year end. It's currently at 1.8%. Uh, what do you think? Where, where do you think it'll end up? You know, 2% is probably a ceiling because I'm a lot more bullish than people think. I'm my, my view going into next year is still going to be that inflation is not going to be there. The growth is going to stay low. We still have the potential of a shock, maybe in financial markets, that could push financial markets down, something similar to a Brexit. Maybe it's next week in the election, or maybe it's in December with the Italian referendum, which I think could be – Brexit 1.5, that the Italian referendum is that big. So there's a lot of things I see that could push rates lower as opposed to pushing them higher. So, yeah, we hit 185 yesterday. 2% might be an absolute ceiling on the market. But I do think that the next big move in rates would be lower. All right. Next big move in rates lower, Jim Bianco. Tell me about commodity prices. Are commodity prices at their bottom or are we going to see a continued increase well you know the the thing about commodities right now is you almost have to separate them out you know my my favorite line about them is corn copper cocoa crude oil um and coffee all start with the letter c but they're not all necessarily commodities in a aggregate because they all do very different things the agricultural markets look very bullish right now they could continue to move higher 
The precious metals are struggling. I still think that oil is topping or the energy complex is, is topping as well, too. And you're kind of going sideways with uh, the industrial metals. So they're all over the lot. But if you wanted to look at it in a big picture, there is no strong breakout of the commodity indexes right now. They're probably trending sideways to slightly lower. And that strong breakout, which would suggest world growth is coming, I don't think that indicator is going to give it to us right now. So, you know, you were saying that you think that the next move in rates is going to be lower. Uh, it seems like the consensus from, well, it seems like the consensus is kind of splintering. What do you think the big consensus trade is right now? You know, that's a good question because it depends on who you talk to. If the, if you ask somebody who's got the title economist, they've been <laughs> bearish on rates since about 2003. And, you know, don't let 150 months of being wrong get in the way. Their rates are still going to keep going up. If you ask a trader, they're much more bullish on the market right now. And portfolio managers are a little bit in the middle. I would still argue to you, though, that the bigger surprise, in the marketplace would be a move down to 130 on the 10-year yield, which was the early July low and the all-time low, as opposed to a move back to the January 1st high of 225. So I think that the surprise move, given all of that, would probably be a revisit of the all-time lows, which was set just in early July. So we're going to see this movie for another like seven or eight, maybe nine more times. Jim Bianco, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Uh, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research in Chicago. I want to learn more about Suicide Squad. I want to learn more about Suicide Squad from Paul Sweeney, the director of North American Research and Media uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, did you see it? Uh, I did not, but uh, fortunately a lot of other people did, and that was uh, one of the contributors to a pretty strong quarter from uh, Time Warner this morning. Um, you know, Their movie studio did, did, did well, as expected. Uh, the cable networks actually did a little bit better than expected, and the, the, those are the real cash flow drivers for the company. Uh, and HBO, the third leg of that stool at the, at the company, uh, also had a pretty good quarter. So the company beat expectations here in, in the quarter. They were able to raise their guidance for the year uh, a, a little bit in terms of prop profitability. So uh, I'm sure they feel pretty good about it. I'm sure AT&T does as well. Well, yeah. So this is this is what surprises me, right? Time Warner should feel good. AT&T should feel good. Both stocks down. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, it, it's interesting about this deal, the AT&T and, and Time Warner deal. The marketplace is very dubious about this deal uh, getting approved. I mean, it's it's a transaction that's not scheduled to close until the end of 2017. But even if you kind of do the arbitrage math that um, suggests that uh, I think the market is discounting a less than 50-50 chance that this deal uh, gets approved by, by the regulators. And so, um, you know, we're going to have to see how things play out with the election and then see how the things play out with the regulators. But a lot of uncertainty around this deal. Hey, Paul, can we just go through the three areas that sure. Time Warner is on uh, involved in? Because you mentioned uh, the cable channels, right? The uh, the cable broadcast. Monthly subscription fees, higher, right? Why yeah, is that? So it's a, you know, the monthly subscription uh, fees, those, those are the fees that the, the cable companies like Comcast and uh, pay to the um, uh, media owners like Time Warner and Viacom to carry the channels. Those typically have been growing uh, a revenue stream for the media companies in the high single-digit range. Uh, Time Warner actually did a little, little bit better. Um, they were able to uh, renegotiate some of their contracts recently uh, that took advantage that were that priced in the NBA uh, contract, which um, they were able to charge some higher fees because they're now carrying some N NBA games. So uh, that was a pretty strong uh, driver for them. Advertising uh, is still. 
relatively strong in the marketplace, and uh, Time Warner's cable networks are big beneficiary of that as well. Is is the HBO Now that standalone streaming service? Do they give any indication of how that's performing? Uh, it's performing per, uh, pretty well. There's there's north of one million uh, new subscribers or standalone subscribers to HBO Now. Um, you know, the real question that I think investors have is: Are these new subscribers to HBO, or are they cannibalizing some of their existing subscribers that get it through a cable system? Time Warner suggesting that the, the vast majority of these are, are new subscribers, uh, younger demos, people that were not subscribing to HBO in the future. But um, that's clearly, a, I think, where the industry is going, which is to make your programming available, not just on the traditional uh cable systems, but also direct to consumers, um, very similar to how people get their uh, Netflix. So at the end of the day, we're going to know everything that we need to know about media, the current state of media in the world. We're going to get some earnings from 21st Century Fox, uh, as well as Facebook. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, what's the narrative going to be? Well, the narrative is going to be that the traditional media companies like 21st Century Fox are in pretty good shape, but the real growth, the real ad dollars are shifting, continuing to shift to the media, to the online media companies like Facebook. So Facebook is going to put up a revenue growth north of 50%, um, and you compare that to some of the high single-digit revenue we've seen from the traditional media companies, and it just shows you the way of the world. I'm just going to say, take a look at the annual revenue growth of Facebook. We're gonna, I know we're going to get quarterly after the uh, close of trading, but you're talking going from five billion to seven point eight billion to twelve to seventeen. The estimate now, twenty two billion, and this is in four years. A company goes from five billion to twenty two billion. Yeah, it's just amazing. And if if you think about online, uh, you know, internet advertising, two companies take more than 50% of it, and that is Facebook and Google. Right. If you're a big brand advertiser like a Ford Motor Company or a Coca-Cola and you want to advertise digitally, you only two places you can really spend your money, and that's Google and Facebook. And they also integrate the advertising and marketing. They actually have employees from both companies, the advertisers plus Facebook and Google, actually get together on a regular basis uh, to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah, it's it's, it's really been, been amazing kind of what, what they're doing, and it's kind of frozen out a lot of the other players. So you see like a Twitter sitting there with 320 million uh, subscribers or users onto their platform, they are really finding it hard to really get the attention of Madison Avenue and of big advertisers. So it's really become a duopoly from the perspective of uh, you know the big online advertisers. So you know that's one of the things AT and T says. AT and T says we are going to create a big advertising alternative to the Googles and, and Facebooks of the world. Well, as uh, Lisa just mentioned, uh, shares of AT and T they're down about a quarter of a percent today. Thank you very much for joining us. Paul Sweeney, head of uh, research, director of research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, he's a human, and he's been tracking uh, human feelings about the election. Mark Nickhead is our politics and national government reporter for Bloomberg News. He can be followed on Twitter at mnickhead. All right, Mark, uh, we got a poll, and then there's something from President Obama having to do with the FBI. Let's start with the independent, uh, the poll of independence by uh, Bloomberg Politics. What what does it show? 
Well, it's actually a bit of good news for Hillary Clinton after uh, several days here of bad news related to the uh, release of the FBI letter uh, showing there's more scrutiny on emails. The uh, poll of independents, folks who say they haven't decided yet, um, showed her with a slight advantage over Donald Trump, about 39% to, to 35%. And that's important because this is a group of, of swing voters that can often decide an election, particularly in key battleground states. And it's a group that Republican Mitt Romney won by five percentage points in 20. 2012. So it shows that Donald Trump is still having some trouble sort of building the coalition of, of uh, Republicans and independents that, uh, you know, helped uh, Romney in 12, and, and even then he lost. So it shows he still has some work to do to get the, these folks to build a coalition that wins. It seems like just based on market action that a lot of traders certainly think that uh, Trump is, that Mr. Trump is, is Positioning in a better position right now uh, to become our next president than Secretary Clinton. And, you know, from the people you speak with, the analysts, do you do they seem to suggest that Trump has seriously improved his odds of becoming president in the past couple of days? Yeah, there are signs uh, and, and suggestions that, you know, he is better positioned today than he was, say, last week. I mean, certainly before the news that FBI, FBI letter broke, you know, the sense was that we were headed towards a pretty solid Clinton victory and that the race has tightened now significantly. Now, you know, we always expected the race to get closer as Republican voters sort of came home in the final days before the election. Um, but the FBI revelations seem to have sort of shifted the, the thinking and, and feeling about this race. I mean, it's still, I think, going to be an uphill climb for Trump to get to the 270 electoral votes. I mean, his campaign has essentially laid out that he needs to win Florida, uh, North Carolina, Ohio, and Iowa, and then another battleground state to really have a good shot at 220, 270 electoral votes. So if Clinton can stop him in any one of those states, you know, she would still be the, the favorite, I think. But, you know, as it has been through this entire election, people are wary now of making predictions, and it's been so unpredictable. You know, we're going to have to see what happens on Election Day, for sure. Um, another big question, certainly among the people who I speak with, is will Congress back Donald Trump's proposals, particularly his economic proposals, which are uh, rather expansive and don't really kind of cohere with traditional uh, sort of fiscal uh, conservatism? Uh, so, you know, what's your sense? Do you, is your sense that that, that the uh, House and, and Senate will back his proposals as is? Well, a lot will depend on what the composition of Congress looks like after this election. I mean, we're still waiting to see, you know, what, uh, who controls the Senate. You know, there's a, there's a chance at least for the Democrats to regain control there and what the mix of sort of very conservative members versus, you know, more moderate, uh, con uh Republicans in, in the House will be, assuming they continue controlling that chamber. Um, and you're right. I mean, there's, there's, Trump's proposals have kind of a mix of sort of more traditional Reagan-esque kind of, uh, elements like his tax Proposals, I think, would, would have more broad uh, acceptance there. But, you know, there's other things that I think he would have trouble getting through a Congress. But, you know, a, a lot of variables there to be determined before we can sort of guess on how, you know, anything specific might play out. Mark, uh, the president, President Barack Obama, uh, has said uh, he was uh, giving a uh, interview and online he described, he said that uh, the FBI director James Comey's decision to renew a probe of Hillary Clinton's emails uh, had become a political controversy. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. I mean, President Obama's in a tough position in as much as this is his... He appointed uh, Comey. Right, and he can't sort of be out there publicly, you know, sort of questioning him or, or undermining him. Um, but, you know, there's no question that, you know, having the FBI director 
you know, send this letter to Congress 11 days before election sort of raises the question of whether, you know, the FBI is, you know, uh, interfering or at least, you know, influencing election um, by doing this so close to the, the voting. And, you know, whether that was the intent or not, sort of the practical outlook, uh, impact of that could be that this sways, you know, votes in, in the race, which is something that, you know, the Justice Department and FBI, you know, sort of a, a rule they've, they've tried to avoid, you know, pretty fastidiously. I mean, this is basically like Obama saying we breathe air. I mean, of course, it's become a political controversy. I mean, every poll has kind of showed uh, that it's certainly being uh, taken to some degree uh, like that. Whether or not it's justified or not is a whole other question. It certainly has become a political story. Mark, going forward, what is the one thing that you're looking at today that you think that is sort of the underreported story? I think the underreported story um, is what's happening with early vote among key uh, elements of the Obama coalition. This is the sort of African Americans, young voters, uh, in particular Latinos, um, who supported Barack Obama, and are they um, going to go with with Hillary Clinton in the numbers that she needs to um, to win? And we're seeing a little bit of that insight with the early voting totals that are coming out, suggest that there might be less enthusiasm uh, among uh, African Americans, for example, for Hillary Clinton than there was for Obama. And I think diving into those numbers and how that coalition votes will, will go a long way toward determining whether Hillary right. Clinton wins. Mark Niquette, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Niquette, politics and national government reporter for Bloomberg News, breaking down all things related to this presidential election. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. The shares of TE Connectivity, they are higher by about 1.5%. Many people may not know about TE Connectivity. It has a former name, Tyco Electronics. And here to tell us more about TE Connectivity and its future is Tom Lynch. He is the chairman of TE Connectivity. He's also the outgoing chief executive. Also with us is the president and the incoming chief executive, Terrence Curtin. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Great to be here. Passing um, of the baton here. I was going to say there must be some kind of special ceremony, you know, a secret uh, password or something. But I'm wondering if you could just describe, Tom, what kind of company are you uh, – I know you're going to remain chairman, but what kind of company do you feel you're handing over uh, to Terrence to, to uh, take charge of? A very good company, uh, well, I think, with I'm, lots of opportunity to get better. I'm detail. Give, I know, but give us the de- – because I was reading – there's a lot of cool stuff. You, you, you work with companies like Google yes. and Facebook. People may not know this. Tell us what, what is TE Connectivity. Well, TE Connectivity is a $12 billion global company with uh, 70% of our revenue outside the U.S., and we're right in the middle of the connected world phenomena. So automotive, aircraft, machinery – communications equipment, sensors, medical A lot devices, of sensors, a lot of sensors, connectors. And a lot of connectors, uh, 12 billion plus of them. Well, so I- we're in a great... A, a great industry, say, a multiple industries. Everybody's our customers, we like to say. Well, and it's a very competitive industry. So, Terrence, I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about uh, going forward. Yes, this is the future as far as uh, everything under the sun being connected, but there is everyone also wanting to get in that from Google to Amazon to who knows whoever. Uh, so what's the competitive landscape like, and how big do you think the business could grow? Well, when we look at the business today, like Tom says, about $12 billion. And when we look at the landscape, it's a pretty diverse landscape. The customers that you mentioned are more of our customers and competitors, the Googles and the Facebooks. Our engineers, we're fortunate. We have over 7,000 engineers that actually enable 
some of the customers that you talked about, as well as the automotive companies that Tom talked about. So what's great is how we're globally deployed, and I think we get the benefit of the trends of the connected world, as well as the various industries we have. So that can be automotive, medical. From a competitive standpoint, it's many different type of competitors. There isn't one single competitor we go up against. It really depends upon the applications we play into, and that's one of the things that we think we excel at, bringing that engineering to our customers to really enable where they want to take the connected world. Terrence, uh, I, I got to mention a couple projects to <coughs> kind of give some uh, flesh to all of this. Uh, Pacific Light Cable Network, you were just chosen, I believe, to uh, be a contractor there. For This is a Facebook-Google uh, project. You've also got the New Cross Pacific and uh, Marea. And I wonder if you could just tell us about each of those and, and how that defines the company. Yeah, Pim. Great questions. There are projects we've had in our subcom business, which is a little bit less than 10%. You've got to tell people, subcom. Subcom. Submer uh, submarine communications. Right. Okay. And really what that we do in our subcom business is really build out the long-haul oceanic uh, systems for the world. And they actually support the cloud. So anytime you think about a cloud application, really, where do you get to the data center to support it? And that's where the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsoft that are building they have the cloud applications. We support them by building systems that they actually own and use to make sure they can bring their services down to their customers. And that's what's great about what TE does is we enable our customers to bring that great connected world to them. Tom, you've been the uh, CEO since 2006. The world has changed a lot in the 10 years. What's been the biggest change in your industry? Well, the, the trends have accelerated for connectivity. That's the biggest thing. You know, so there hasn't been a big shift. It's just been sort of no. It's it's just it's acceleration. So maybe the best way to think about it, you think of what a car was like ten years ago versus today. It's it's incredibly different inside, right? You still have four tires and an engine, but the connectivity throughout it, the safety systems throughout it. Every time the, you know the uh, you have to improve emissions, more and more technology going into the car. So. That's the great thing about this business. It's this acceleration of smarts into virtually every aspect of the world, and it requires more sensors and more connectivity. For us as a business, the big change is we weren't in the sensor business 10 years ago. Now we're one of the world's leading sensor suppliers. We weren't in the minimally invasive medical device business selling uh, subsystems into that. Now we're one of the biggest players in that area. So for us, you know, we've jumped on those big trends in the last five years. Margins. Tell us a little bit about margins. Uh, who wants to handle that? Do you want to take that? Uh, sure. Chance? Sure. Oh, well, okay, Tom, go ahead. Our margins today, our pre-tax uh, operating margins run north of 16%. Our after-tax margins run about 12%. So a very healthy business. And the reason for that is, is as Terrence mentioned, in these harsh environments where 80% of our business is, very hard to, you know, to, to get these solutions and get them right. So if we design something in that has to go onto the engine of a car, it's, and that car's on the road for 20 years. It has to last for 20 years in all, you know, the, uh, in, in the environment, whether it's hot, cold, wet, dry. So you get paid for that because your customers rely. We're, we're very deep in the architecture of our customers' uh, end products, and you get paid for that. So it's, it's a good business, and it's a good cash flow business. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Tom Lynch, the outgoing CEO of TE Connectivity, and Terrence Curtin, the incoming CEO of the company. Thank you so much for being with us.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.